Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Rebecca Mayet. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and to learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Today, our guest is Josh Floyd, a strategic foresight consultant based in Melbourne, Australia. Josh draws on experience with future studies, strategic foresight and systems thinking in practice. He finds these useful for making sense of situations in which humans find themselves that are characterised by inherent uncertainty and for organising thinking and action that can improve those situations. Josh is interested in enabling both individual and collective learning that supports ways of living that regenerate the conditions required for their support. His work explores overarching themes associated with relationships between energy and society, because he believes this context is essential for making sense of and dealing with life in contemporary human societies. Welcome to FuturePod, Josh. Thanks, Vic. So how did you get into foresight and and future studies? Well, the story that I guess I've got in mind for that really goes right back for me. I mean, back to tr- to childhood. Um, so I grew up in a household where my father worked for the CSIRO and he was developing metallurgical technology that was really responding to, this is in the early 70s, to the um, emerging understanding around limits to growth. So he actually talks about how the limits to growth discourse Uh, was really informing the program that he was working in, where he was developing technology to increase the recovery of metals from um, available ores uh, and also recovering material from waste streams and also to to reduce the environmental impacts of uh, of existing production techniques uh, for for making metals. So that was something that I, I knew about from as far back as I can remember. Um, I also remember having conversations with him around things like the oil shocks in the 1970s and so forth. So I had this this sort of appreciation for the sort of biophysical context for the world that we lived in from from right back then. I mean, it sounds crazy that there were things that I might have been aware of or thinking about when I was, uh, in my memory, five years old. But that's that's the memory that I now have, and it's probably probably fairly reconstructed based on you know interests that evolved uh, subsequent to that but um, th- that's that's sort of where I I see it all going back to and then I um, I guess skip forward and I ended up studying mechanical engineering and then working in the metallurgical industry for a company that that my dad actually founded my family founded my mum and dad founded it, to take forward this technology that he developed in the 1970s when the CSIRO decided that they weren't going to continue to support its development. So he uh, set out to, to do this. I was really interested in what he was doing, what that technology was about, given that, that background context to it that I, I'd been aware of my whole life. Um, and I'd really, I really had this interest in how technology um, and um, everything that went, around, went along with that 
could be used to improve conditions for, for people around the world. I'd also been brought up with this real appreciation for, I guess, um, the, the different contexts in which people in different cultures and from different uh, backgrounds were living, particularly around inequality, uh, economic inequality. Uh, my parents had travelled a lot uh, before I was born. Uh, my dad actually rode a motorbike from with a sidecar, took it from Australia and took it on a ship to Sri Lanka or to Ceylon at the time and then travelled overland from, from there to the UK to do his PhD in 1966. And then my, my parents drove back again in this little Austin minivan in 1970, just before I was born. And so that really shaped my uh, understanding of things growing up. I grew up with the stories and slideshows from those travels mm. as basically my introduction to the world. And it had a big impact. So when I started working in the engineering area, I had this real this idea that it was really a place where you could really contribute to and actually grapple with questions about, uh, big questions about human development. And I guess I pretty quickly found out that um, you could only go so far with that within that engineering context. Uh, it really sort of provided me with a way with of coming up very quickly against the, the limits of that uh, technical and technological approach to dealing with, to understanding what's going on in the world and responding to it. And so I got, I guess, a little bit disheartened by that. Um, you know, engineering approaches to understanding the world, dealing with its problems, are really good for dealing with approximate causes around issues but you don't spend a lot of time going back, digging deep into the, the sort of deeper underpinnings. And I had this real yearning for, for, for doing that, for, for understanding what was going on behind the, the situations we had in the world around economic inequality and around environmental, the environmental impacts of, of the, de the development that I'd benefited so much from. And so I, I stepped away from that engineering career and really went exploring for a few years. And it was in the, the course of that exploration that I encountered future studies as, a, as an area that, um, that really sort of spoke to me as a way of grappling with these questions that I'd had across my whole life at a much deeper level. And the way that I, I encountered that was, was actually really interesting. I, I met... Um, Frank Fisher, who had been the director, of, who was the director of the Graduate School of Environmental Science at Monash for about 25 years, from the 1970s through to early 2000s, actually more than 25 years. And he had actually employed or given Richard Slaughter his first job when he came to Australia. And so I met Frank. The pro his program at Monash was actually in the process of winding down when I met him in about 2003. And he said, well, if you, if you want to go and study in these sorts of areas, um, why don't you go and talk to Richard Slaughter? Uh, and so I had a look at what Richard was doing, and it really spoke to me. It was, it was the first time I'd encountered a situation where, where, there was, where it was legitimate to ask questions of the depth that really, really spoke to me about what's going on in the world and, and you know, about the human situation. Mm. So that's the sort of the, the long arc of how I ended up there. And, um, mm. you know, it, it just then made sense to really sort of engage with what was happening at the mm. then at the Australian Foresight Institute. Yeah. 
And so then you studied masters at, yeah, so through I, the university. So I did the the masters program. And actually, when I uh, initially uh, met Frank, I was looking for opportunities to to do a PhD at the time, and mm. and he he said go and talk to Richard about this. And Richard said, well, you know, come and enrol in the masters program here, and then we can talk about that later. And mm. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up doing the master's program, and um, you know the way things played out there, those other plans didn't didn't ever eventuate, um, but things went in other interesting directions. Did you want to speak more about the disillusionment that you were experiencing? Yeah, and I, it's probably worth qualifying that too, in that it wasn't all disillusion. It was more around hitting the limits of where I could go with sorts of inquiry that I was working with and the, the context I was working in. And subsequent to all of that, I've really come back to appreciating where that all came from. And, and I, I now the work that I do now draws a great deal on, on that background, which was a really, really good background to have. But what happened is um, through the 1990s, I was working in, in this uh, metallurgical technology development area. And most of our projects were in developing countries, India, China, South America, Africa. Um, and so I was doing a lot of site work, so going to, to um, supervise the installation of plants and the start-up of these metallurgical plants, plants to make copper and tin, um, process a whole lot of materials uh, like that um, in places like India and China. And so really sort of working at, well, literally at the coalface of economic development in, in those places when, when things were really starting to boom, I mean, in, in China especially. And it really gave me a deep appreciation for where that development trajectory was heading. Um, it was really, it was fairly easy to see that, that it was, if it was going to head in, if it was going to go as far as, uh, as we've gone in the Western world, in the global north, then the consequences of that were going to be quite extreme in terms of the environmental implications, but also in terms of the, how the, the benefits of, of that sort of development were being distributed. Um, it was you know, really interesting to see that, uh, that happening in places, really in places that were characterised by extreme poverty in, in many situations, and where the benefits to the people who are actually working in these places were nothing like the benefits that have been realised by uh, the working classes in in the Western world. Um, at least that was that was the impression that I had working alongside uh, working alongside people in those in those countries. And so, it really for me um, brought to light the the limitations of that developmental model of that uh, economic development model. And so I started really sort of searching around for other things. I, around that time, actually, when I was working in India in, um, I think it was 1998, I read Eric Drexler's book, Engines of Creation, about molecular nanotechnology. And it told this, this really you know, miraculous-sounding story of how technological development could potentially overcome every sort of economic problem, every economic uh, challenge that we'd ever faced. And I read this and thought, you know, I, I really gave it a lot of a lot of consideration. I mean, it really appealed to me. Um, and I, I spent a couple of years looking into this area and looking at whether 
and my engineering background could sort of take me into into those sorts of areas. And in doing that, it really once again brought me up against the limits of that. I guess uh, technologically driven approach to development. Uh, I met with people who were were really enthusiastic about those areas, and yet there was something there that that was missing to me. There were questions that um, sort of around the, the human context for all of this that that just seemed to be missing. And so I, I was really, in a sense, uh, despairing about how, where it is that we could ask these questions and they could be treated as legitimate. So, Josh, what was it about foresight that helped you um, in that situation when you were a little bit disillusioned and, and hitting up against limits? Yeah, the thing that really struck me was, I guess, a, a deep critical appreciation for the foundations of human knowledge systems, really. Um, the questions that were being asked in, in this area were, were beyond anything that I'd encountered in, in my education before that or in my training and practice. Um, and yet they'd always been interesting to me, really. What, you know, why is it that we that the particular forms of knowledge that, that are privileged in our society have the status that they do? Um, where do they come from? What's the basis for them? What's the, what's the basis of their legitimacy? Do they deal with everything that we might need to know? Um, are there other questions that that might also need to be asked? And I I really saw I, I think I, I the first thing that I encountered for the in the foresight area was really just the the blurb on the Swinburne website for the strategic foresight course. And I think there was something that Richard Slaughter had written there, or perhaps a, a link to a paper or something like that, where I thought, hang on, this is actually going somewhere really interesting in terms of digging down into into the foundations of of what we think it's worthwhile to know about and to to talk about and and to inquire into. So were there any particular tools or methods that you came across um, that really you were drawn to, to, to use or to explore more? Yeah, so I think the first the first thing that really stood out to me, and it wasn't so much a tool or method, although it then pointed towards the sort of search for appropriate tools and method, methods around this, and that was this insistence in on the on understanding the mind of the practitioner in in good foresight practice, or at least that's what was presented to me as as the foundations for good practice in in this field uh, when I first encountered it. That actually turning the the gaze back on the practitioner sort of turning that inwards and and looking at the practitioner's mind and the way that we make sense of things was really refreshing to me uh, that was that just made so much sense rather than just taking things for granted taking for granted what we see out there in the world that, uh, that we might be able to bring that back and reflect and, and and shine that light on ourselves and on our own sense making so Anything that could could really deepen that appreciation for how it is that, that we as humans make sense of things really uh, was really appealing to me. And it seemed that in, in the foresight area, there was some attention to that. And it was really only once I started engaging with the field more that I appreciated, came to sort of understand and appreciate that this was quite an unusual view of things 
uh, in this particular place that I happen to have just sort of fallen in with, I'd actually, uh, I, I mentioned Frank Fisher and, and how he introduced me to, to Richard Slaughter. And it was actually through Frank, uh, who I, I, I started working with Frank also, um, teaching in, the, in, in a postgraduate course in sustainability at Swinburne, right around the time that I started the Foresight course. But it was through Frank that I encountered the work of people like Umberto Maturana and Francisco Varela, and especially uh, Gregory Bateson. Um, Frank had done a really pioneered bringing the, the ideas of, of thinkers like these in the systems area into environmental science. And so because of the connection between Frank's work and Richard's, uh, I was sort of primed for looking at, uh, at ways of, of engaging with these ideas in the foresight space. Um, and so that was that's really what that's that was what really appealed to me at the, at the time being able to explore ideas around the ways that ha, the the ways in which we actually engage with the world shape what we see what we perceive and, and the sense that we make of it mm. uh, and how changing that training those ways of seeing picking up uh, new tools new ways of looking at the world uh, new frameworks for thinking looking at how that could actually affect what, what we're able to see. Mm. And that was tremendously exciting to me, the idea mm. that there might be whole worlds out there that, that had sort of flown under the radar previously that could be revealed mm. through picking up new tools and techniques, mm. Mm. Um, new habits of thought, new, new systems of ideas. Mm-hmm. And so fast forward to now, do you have the same um, energy and focus around that? Is that still interesting for you? Do you tap into that oh, still? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. and right at the moment, I've been going back and rereading Gregory Bateson's Steps to the Ecology of Mind, Steps to an Ecology of Mind, yeah. um, because his daughter, Nora Bateson, from his second marriage, wrote this absolutely magnificent book a couple of years ago called Small Arcs of Larger Circles, that it's just come into awareness for me and I, I started reading and it just spoke volumes to me. Mm. And so these, these ideas are absolutely central to everything that I do now. Mm. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's, that's been a, a now almost, I guess, going on two decades process of in, journey of inquiry for me. Uh, and mm. yeah, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't get, you know, it doesn't lose any of its sort of interest. I don't lose any of my enthusiasm for it. One of the things in in the introduction I mentioned and from your bio as well is around systems thinking and and that is a um, particular interest and way that that you work and operate and part of. Can you speak a little bit around um, systems thinking as a tool? Yeah, and those people that I've all all mentioned were my... So as an an engineer, I started to get an appreciation for, I guess, the, the interrelatedness of things. You know, I was grappling with situations with systems, even with, with technological systems that I could see were behaving in ways that were beyond the sort of simple analytical techniques or simpler analytical techniques that I had at hand for, for making sense of them. There were things going on that I was encountering. I, you know, I'd be involved in um, uh, building plants that I'd, been, that, that I'd helped to design and they'd be behaving in ways that were, you know, really quite unanticipated uh, for, for a whole range of reasons, including the cultural context in which we were implementing them, uh, but just in terms of the interactions of, of different pieces of equipment and, and technical systems. And, and this was fascinating to me that, 
you know, here we are, we're building these things and we don't know exactly how they're going to function, how they're going to operate. So that really started to build for me, I guess, an appreciation of systems ideas. And I didn't really know what that was at the time. I didn't have a language for it. I hadn't hadn't dealt with any of this stuff in my engineering education. It probably it could have been there um, if I'd if I'd been if I'd been sort of primed for that at the time, but it wasn't front and center, and you had to go searching for that. I think um, if it was going to be there at all, so uh, I had this this sort of for me what was for me this sort of native um, uh, encounter with the systems domain, with the sort of situations that the systems sciences had then been developed to to grapple with and make sense of and interact with but then I was really fortunate in in meeting Frank um, when I did around uh, 2003 he he'd also come out of an engineering background but then went into the environmental science area at a time when the system sciences were really I guess a lot fresher than than they perhaps are now and and were you know there was still a lot of excitement uh, a degree of you know, there was a real, a real um, enthusiasm for what they might be able to to reveal. Um, you know, this is where conversations around the the distinctions between reductionistic thinking and and holistic thinking were really were really um, capturing a lot of attention. So Frank had really started bringing this into environmental science and had taken it a lot further than the sort of hard systems approaches. Um, at, around that time, there was, there was through the work of the sort of people who I've mentioned, Gregory Bateson, Francisco uh, Varela and Umberto Maturana, um, an appreciation was really starting to emerge of the need to put the, the systems thinker into the systems that you're looking at and understand the thinking processes as part of the systems that, that we're dealing with. Um, this is really the whole second-order cybernetics movement that uh, I think started emerging around the late 60s, early 70s in response to the perceived sort of limitations of the hard systems approaches of getting out there and trying to map real systems that exist in some uh, absolute objective way out there in the world. And so so that was... You know, my, my, when, I, when, I, when I first realised, when I was first introduced to the idea that there is actually a systems field out there, there's a, there are ways of studying these sorts of situations that I was starting to pick up on in, uh, in organised and, and formal ways, my entry point into that, rather than being sort of the engineer's entry point of the hard systems approach, um, was actually the the what you might call the soft systems approach, um, where the 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 ways of thinking about the world um, and the the, the practitioners' um, tools of thinking about it were part and parcel of the systems that you were trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's been there right from the start. Um, so that was that you know right around the time that I actually met Richard, or just before I met met Richard Slaughter, and was sort of inducted into the the futures and foresight area. That was also a foundation, foundational part of, of what I was starting to look at. Is there a framework that you find particularly useful that you'd like to share with the listeners? I think pretty much anything that gets us to critically reflect on the foundations for the knowledge systems we're dealing with and the knowledge claims we're making is going to be 
very, very helpful. But there is a particular framework that I, I think is really useful, a, a, a foresight-specific framework that I think is really useful in here. In fact, for me, it's kind of the gold standard in terms of providing guidance. And that's a, a framework that Joe Virus put together in about 2005 in a paper that I think he published in the journal Foresight called the Generalized Layered Methodology. And it's this idea that consciousness, that the... the, the the knowledge that we construct in consciousness can be seen through four layers going from the contents of consciousness at the, the most sort of um, superficial level down into constructs of consciousness and then below that again, capacities of consciousness and then at the most foundational level, looking at um, the conditions of consciousness. Uh, there's a lot of depth to this and probably more than, than we can go into now, uh, but I would definitely uh, recommend that anyone who look, wants to look at, uh, at sort of organised frameworks for, 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 for going into the, for really digging down into the foundations of knowledge claims in a, in a foresight uh, relevant context, you, um, you know, you really couldn't do any better than, than that. Um, and interestingly, uh, I guess a lot of listeners will be familiar with um, Sahail Inyatala's causal layered analysis. And Joe, in that uh, generalized layered methodology, actually situated causal layered analysis within that and then um, sort of made an attempt at expanding beyond that by adding these deeper layers. Uh, so it's, I, I think it's kind of a, almost a turbocharged version of of a, a, an approach to futures thinking that really has a lot of currency and a lot of, um, a lot of people to be familiar with. And I think when you get down into that really deep layer that Joe's pointing to there, the conditions of consciousness, there's something in that that, um, that I hadn't really appreciated until, until Joe had uh, put this paper together and drawn this to attention. Actually, I was, I was studying in the course when he wrote this and we were having some conversations around some of these, uh, that the ideas that were going into it. So it was a really interesting time to be, to be there. Um, but the, well, the thing that he really made clear for me was the importance of macro history in understanding those conditions of consciousness. And that was a really new idea for me. Um, it, it situated sort of contemporary futures and foresight thinking in a much broader, much longer term, deeper view of, I guess, the human situation. And Joe, of course, has continued on um, you know, looking at big history and um, looking at foresight and futures in the context of big history. And I, I have the, I've, I guess in my mind, I've got this idea that um, it really sort of started there with this, this model that he'd put together. I don't know if he'd see it in the same ways, but I see the the sort of origins of his um, explorations into big history right there in that, that model where he highlighted uh, macro history as so foundational to, um, to, to making sense of how it is that we make sense of things. And that's really sort of stuck with me. Um, I, I guess looking at what's going on at the moment in the world uh, you know, we might look at things on a 30 or 50, 50 year sort of time horizon and situating that in a much, much broader sweep of, of human history and, and really big history beyond the human story itself, I, I just find really helpful and really, really exciting. 
um, it's a really good way to get to get some perspective on what's going on you know in the immediate present but even looking out sort of 30 years or so uh, into the future to be able to bring that back and put that into the into a sweep of history that might be over thousands or tens of thousands or even millions of years it really um, really helps with uh, with with working out you know what's significant what's important and 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 especially with looking at the the incredible panoply of ways of making sense of things that we've got available to us So what sort of future do you see, say, in 30 years' time? Well, I think, you know, in many ways, that's a really deeply uncomfortable question for me. And I'd, I'd love to throw it back to you for a moment and say, well, why 30 years? What is it about 30 years that um, makes, you know, that makes that a relevant context for thinking about, about the future? Mm, mm, yeah, good question. Um, for me personally, I feel like it's still within my life <laughs> lifespan. So 30 years time, I'm hoping still to be here on earth. And um, in terms of how quickly change is happening now, doubling my life, what would it look like? Yeah, I was thinking the same. Um, it's, you know, I'll be 76. And so what comes to mind for me here is that 30 years is is both a really long way out to be thinking, perhaps not as futures and foresight practitioners, we might you know, think that we're accustomed to doing that, but you know, in, a, in a broader sense of contemporary society, it's a really long way out to be thinking. But it's also, in a sense, not far enough. And I'm thinking here, like um, the fact that, well, the fact, the, the view, the perspective that, um, the climate change that we may already have locked in could impact on, and I think I think I'm right with this, um, the next two ice ages that we would expect to occur based on the historical cycle of ice ages. Mm. And I'm getting this. I'm paraphrasing this based on um, a talk from Clive Hamilton last year, based on his most recent book. I think this is this is what he said that that. Uh, the amount of warming that we've got locked in will impact the occurrence. It's, it's now thought that um, climate scientists working in this area think that it could impact on the occurrence of the next two ice ages. So we're talking about tens of thousands of years of impact mm. from things that humans have been doing over the last few hundred years. So in a sense, 30 years is, is just this tiny tiny sliver um, and really to to understand the things that are going on and the sort of impacts that that um, changes that are being wrought on the world we've got to take it out so much further than that but I'm also you know I'm also thinking about this question and and you know anything that I say is going to be contestable is going to be open to challenge and so I'm I'm really interested in the conversation about why anyone might think that the 30-year time horizon for the future could look a particular way. And I, I kind of have this real discomfort about answering this question directly 
because the conversation about why I think what I think about what might happen is so much richer and so much more important than the particular details of what I what mm. I think. Mm. You know, so so I spend a lot of time looking at the energetic context, the energy context for human futures. It's kind of a throwback to my engineering background and even beyond that, um, you know, I, I trained in mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering is all about um, energy conversions, the, 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 the enge- engineering of systems for converting energy from one form to another in order to enable pretty much everything that we do day to day in, in the in the contemporary modern world, in the modern world. Um, and so, you know, one way or another, like it or, or hate it, energy questions are foundational to, to, future, to human futures. Mm. You can't get away from it. Um, and so as, as essential context, that's a place that I spend a lot of time looking. But really, it's just context. It's context for bigger questions about, you know, how it is that we want to live. Um, energy considerations you know, really constrain and enable the forms of social organisation that are available to us. Um, and that's, that's why I look at that, uh, that sort of area. So this is an area I've given a lot of attention to, and so um, it's probably, probably a relevant context to respond to your question. And so I think on a 30-year time horizon, there's a very good chance that we're going to need to be organising our societies and the economies that support them in very, very different ways. Um, a lot of the work that I do is around looking at whether alternative sources of energy can allow us to continue on more or less with business as usual, um, organising societies in the way that we organise them now, um, or whether we might need to look at look well beyond energy systems and the technologies by uh, by which energies are converted and different energy sources to actually look at what it is that we want to do in the first place. And so, um, again, you know, this is, this is where a lot of discomfort comes up for me because the conversation really needs to be, for me, about, you know, why, why do I see things in a particular way in order for, for that to have any relevance. But, um, you know, my... My understanding of things is that we're very likely to have to scale back the the uh, the extent of the energy that we have available to us, and that means scaling back the size of the the, the physical transformations that that our societies uh, rely on, and that we pursue as as part of what it is that we think is worthwhile doing as humans. Um, you know, what does that mean in concrete terms? living a lot more locally than we do now, um, probably traveling less, probably having much more constrained um, webs of supply for, for the things that we want in order to, to live well. Um, yeah, it's, really, it's really tricky, though, on a 30-year time horizon with this. I mean, you'd have to say plus or minus 30 years almost in terms of some of these things. But with the climate imperative... Um, there's a there's a really um, you know a fairly well established body of um, body of work now around 
the the rate at which we need to transition away from fossil fuel energy systems to alternatives and and really it's you know re we're talking here about renewable energy systems um, uh, as as our as our best bet here yeah so there's a growing body of scientific and engineering opinion now that really the rate at which we need to decarbonize economies um, is is far too high we need to do it way more quickly than transitioning out our energy systems would actually allow us to do. So one way or another, even if we could have forms of social organisation and economic organisation more or less along the lines of what we have now and at a similar scale, at a similar scale to what we have now, um, powered by renewable energy systems, the rate at which we need to ramp down our fossil fuel usage in order to stay within the, the carbon budget that's available to us is so high, and this is the carbon budget if we want to avoid uh, you know, very dangerous levels of warming, uh, the rates at which we need to do that are so high that we can't do that just by replacing existing energy systems with, with alternatives. Um, so one way or another, we really need to be looking at the way we organise our societies uh, if we're going to respond adequately to the climate situation. Um, you know, whether or not we're able to do that, well, that's a, that's a big question. Um, and, and I think there's really good, good reason to suspect that uh, we might not, that we might be heading towards levels of warming that are really pretty, uh, pretty terrible. Um, I think our best pathway forward in that is to, to have really deep, serious conversations at the societal level amongst all citizens about how it is that we want to live and what it is that we need in order to live well. Um, I'm pretty sure from you know, my couple of decades of inquiry in this now that we really, we've, we've, got a lot of, we've got a lot of leeway with this, a lot more than we probably give credit to. Um, in terms of, of how we organise things, um, the ways that we that we run our lives, the expectations mm. that we have of the world and of, of mm. what it's you know what we should be able to what 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 it should be able to give us. You know, my hope, and I know many would see it as a naive hope, is that we're able to grow a level of desire to engage in different narratives about what it means to be human, that we might just get to a point where, or enough people might get to a point where they're dissatisfied with where the existing narratives around development, around ideas of the good life, just simply not fulfilling enough that people want to go somewhere else with that. Um, and I do see signs of that. I mean... You know, it's crazy that we're only now in 2018 talking about banning disposable plastic shopping bags. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is stuff that, you know, we could have done decades ago and we definitely could have done back in 2005 mm. and we didn't do it. We're talking about doing it now. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Mm. And yet... You look at the conversation that's happening around that, the concern around um, marine plastic pollution and, you know, things like the, the ABC's War on Waste series, um, 
it really seems to be getting conversations happening about about things that were completely off the agenda a few years ago. Mm. And this is not this is not a conversation. These are not conversations that are happening in the in the formal political sphere. These are ha- these are conversations that are happening around kitchen tables on the street uh, in people's workplaces. You know, I see a, a greater willingness amongst people to have deeper conversations. At the same time as we're eroding our capacity for that through social media and and the and the power interests that control how that plays out and how that's how those channels are structured so in a sense on one hand we're kind of I, I see this as eroding our capacity for for structured deep thinking together about the situations we're in while at the same time i think there's this deep thirst and yearning for for something something better than that So, Josh, having that view, how do you personally live your life? Well, you know, I tell most people now that my sort of primary role identity in life isn't as a foresight practitioner or as a energy philosopher, as Mike McCallum likes to call me, um, or as, you know, an engineer as I once was, or it's really as a carer, um, which is come about through I guess my family situation I mean it is how I you know my primary role my primary sort of priority is as a as a carer for my for my family for my kids and I see that extending out into the work that I do in the the foresight area um it really is about how do you how do you how do you develop the capacity for care, and so so much of, of what I do is around that question and and the personal practice of just learning to care for care for the the, the world that we have and the futures that we might bring about um, more deeply. And so, for me, you know, I've written in the past, not for quite a while now, but um, about this idea of what I call embodied foresight. That is really taking foresight out of the sort of intellectual, conceptual, cognitive realm into present embodied action, um, learning to see through the way that I live day to day and actually taking the way that I'm making sense of the world and saying, okay, how does that apply to this little microcosm right now? Um, you know, it's little challenges like with my kids saying that you see that piece of rubbish over there and you acknowledge its existence, you own it. So my kids, they're, um, they're 10 and 8 years old and for them it is absolutely just the standard thing to do that you go to the beach and if you see some rubbish on the beach you pick it up and you take it with you not three pieces but all of it anything that you see and they you know, if, if I was to walk past rubbish on the beach plastic 
marine debris on the beach, and we see a lot of it. Uh, we spend a lot of time on the coast and in the water, and so we're seeing that all the time. And over over time, seeing the seeing the increase in it, if I was to walk past it, they they wouldn't they wouldn't let me do it. They you know they they would give me a very they would give me a real real dressing down for that. <laughs> um, so really trying to bring, I guess a a level of really immediate care to the situations that I find myself in. Mm. It's what it's about. Um, and there's nothing, nothing that's too small in that. Um, really sort of committing to that transformation at an individual level and mm. therefore learning about what does it actually take for us to do this collectively as a society. And in the process, I think, you know, over many years now, finding that the things that were we to do them collectively would actually address the challenges, the dilemmas that we face as a humanity at a, at a, at a huge scale, actually not nearly as hard as they're made out to be um, when we talk about them sort of in that formal political sphere mm. and in, you know, polite official discourse around around our problems Mm. it's actually not that hard Mm. so anything that um you know i'm constantly looking for opportunities to conduct my life in in ways that can not just reduce the impact of it but can contribute to i guess generating places of health and well-being places that i'd like to live in Mm. um places that that i think are going to be good for my my kids to grow up in um and in doing that you know in a tiny tiny way hopefully in training that with the the people that i'm that i'm living with um you know and there are successes and failures with that you know i've had staggering failures around that at a personal level you know at a really really deep personal level but then being open to the learning that 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 can can throw up to being i guess approaching life with with an openness an a continual openness to learning and to being skeptical about what i know and what i do and how how that's contributing to things um, and being willing to to look at that and revise that and and change things about that and change adopt new viewpoints on that um, in response to the context that I find myself in mm. that's what it's about mm. you know as I've I, I got this really from this way of phrasing this from Nora Bateson's book Small Arcs of Larger Circles that I mentioned earlier on. Um, and I don't know if she quite says it in this way, but this is how I've sort of internalized it. And that is learning to learn as life learns. Is there a way of being human? Are there ways of being human that can fit with and flow with the way that life as a whole learns? You know, can we see the evolutionary and developmental processes that are being played out through 
through life as a whole as a form of, of knowing and learning um, in its own right that goes way beyond the, the far narrower um, ways of knowing and learning that, that you know, are usually legitimate within, within human context. Um, learning to be part of life as a whole and, you know, maybe in Joe Voris's terms, part of the, the whole cosmological sweep of big history as a whole. Mm. But seeing, seeing what it is that, that I am and that we are in, in those much bigger terms. Mm. So that's my, my practice, mm. um, what I try to do day to day. And, you know, there are sort of formal ways that I go about that, formal practices that I engage in um, that, that I've found useful for that. Um, but there are a lot of ways of going about that. Can you give us an example of embodied foresight? Yeah, that was pretty abstract, wasn't it? And I, I guess, yeah, to put it in really concrete terms. So let me give you an example, um, reflecting back to the, to the planning for, for this interview this evening. Mm. So when you sent me the information about it, the thing that really stood out for me was that the biggest chunk of information on that page was about how to get to the place where we're having this conversation mm -hmm. by car and what to do about that incredible encumbrance of a motor vehicle that you've brought with you mm. because it's really hard to park around here and you know there's a lot of traffic. We're in the you know, Melbourne's... Uh, in a in a northern suburbs and where you know cars are a big deal, mm. so the biggest chunk of of information on there that stood out to me was about how to get here by car. Mm. So to make this concrete, what I would do in a situation like this is say, okay, how could I use something as simple as the instructions for how to get to a place where we're going to meet? Um, as a as a way of kind of instantiating or um, bringing forth the type of future that or type of futures that I think we might need to be bringing into being. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, putting on the public transport directions in place of car parking directions, or how to get here by bike, or um, the facilities that are there for for you know, for, for allowing you to travel there by bike. Mm. I mean, I came here by bike, bike today. I don't live mm. far away, which made it pretty easy. Mm. But, um, you know, these are the sorts of things that I would look for, just these little micro, micro opportunities to play with the default expectations that we've, that, that we've got around things. Because, of course, every, the reason, I mean, here's my take on why that information was there because you're wanting to respond to the expectations that that the people who you've invited here to to, to speak with are mm. going to have, mm. and you yeah you, know, you want to res be respectful towards them and make sure that things are easy for them and mm. are going to flow easily. But of course, all those myriad things that we do day to day that make things flow easily are why we have the situations that we have today in the world, whether you think that's good or bad. That's how we bring them bring them forward. Mm. So, something as simple as sending out an invitation to a meeting and emphasising 
the way the unexpected ways for getting there or the other ways of of, of doing things that that are, are going to flip those expectations mm. um they're the sort of thing they're, they're the opportunities that i'm looking for mm. to surprise people to do things in a way uh in you know little microcosms like that that are unexpected to reach down into the gutter and pick up the rubbish that's down there um, even though I'm going to be getting dirty hands and going to have to go and deal with that. And then taking that as an opportunity to ask someone if I can go into their shop and wash my hands and say, oh, I'm doing this because I just noticed that rubbish outside your cafe there looks like someone who's been here has dropped dropped their disposable coffee cup in the gutter. Um, looks like 10 people might have done that. Um, I've just picked them up and I'm just wondering if I could come in and wash my hands. Um, you know, that, they're the little concrete opportunities to to shift things, to bring about shifts in in perception and expectation that you know can often be uncomfortable. I think, but so much of the discomfort I find is in initiating those situations, and once they're initiated, they kind of roll. Mm-hmm. More often than not, people are really willingness to re- really willing to to actually go there and and, and look at what's going on. Mm, mm. Um, I'd love to know how you talk about foresight to someone who doesn't know about foresight. What What is foresight? Yeah, so... I don't know, I'm probably the worst person in the world for giving the really short, sharp, um, easy answer to, to that question, what is foresight? I mean, I've, I've got this orientation towards, I don't know, I guess creating, presenting things in a way that challenges people and gets, gets us digging down into the context of why you would present things in that way and asking those questions about why, about why, why is this important? And so I tend to present foresight in a couple of ways. First one would be as an openness to letting the present self be changed by engaging conceptually with a range of possible trajectories that might unfold from the way things are at the moment. And the second way I think of foresight or present it to people is as a process for using futures, really futures as conceptual constructs, as perturbations, as disturbances that can be used to reorganise the way that we are as selves, either individually or collectively. So it's a way of, for me, foresight is a, a way of opening up entirely new forms of learning and hopefully reorganising us in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that it's temporally oriented towards realities that are yet to unfold. Um, in a sense, it's kind of by the by. It's not really, it doesn't really matter um, that that's the, the context for it, except that that future temporal dimension just allows us to go to places that we otherwise can't. Um, I think it's it's a way of exploring possibilities, entertaining possibilities that 
people will be open to, um, whereas they might not be open to it if we're talking about reinterpretations of past history or trying to come to, come to grips with what's happening now in the present. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Rebecca Mayett saying goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.